Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today is no exception. You know, how often do you get to talk to somebody who's really dedicated their career to the study of probiotics? Uh, I was thrilled to discover this person's website, their probioticadvisor.com. You might be familiar with him. And when I learned about his resource, I we started to track him down to bring him onto the podcast. So let me give you his background. His name is Dr. Jason Harlack. He is a scientist and educator. He's a naturopathic physician, and he's got more than 18 years clinical experience. He is one of the leading experts in the treatment of gastrointestinal conditions with natural medicines. Dr. Harlack's passion for GI health, uh, the microbiome, and probiotics was ignited during his final year of naturopathic training. Subsequently, he went on to do uh, honors and Ph. degrees in the areas of the gastrointestinal microbiota and the causes of dysbiosis, with a particular focus on microbiota manipulation using herbal medicines, prebiotics, and probiotics. We're going to be talking about that uh, in this entire hour, and I hope I am able to grab the questions that you might have. Uh, he's written extensively in the medical literature on these topics, including 16 textbook chapter chapters, and has taught health professionals at both the undergraduate and postgraduate level for the past 18 years. He's chief research officer at probioticadvisor.com, which offers a searchable database that enables easy, evidence-based prescribing of probiotic products and online resources for clinicians and health-conscious members of the public to learn more about the human microbiome and how they can positively influence these ecosystems. Uh, Dr. Harlack, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you. It is a pleasure to, to be here and chat to, to someone else who has a passion about gut bacteria and yeah, health yeah. as well. Uh, absolutely. Yes. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody listening to this uh, podcast also has is is excited that you're here um okay so probiotic advisor folks if you haven't been there go there it's a really amazing very evidence 
based resource, all things probiotics. Just give me a thumbnail on what that is, because I want to pick your brain and jump into specifics, but tell me about this resource. Okay. Well, the Probiotic Advisor database essentially evolved out of paper documents that I started creating from essentially 2000, 2001 onwards when I started teaching naturopathic students about, about probiotics. Um, and at that point in time, there wasn't a huge amount of research out there, there. So it could actually be summed up on a few documents. So I'd have you know, one document on what this study found with this particular strain and another document you know, one page saying where I could find that strain in, in supplement form. And then over subsequent years, <laughs> as the research right. ex exploded, all of a sudden it was like 20 pages, 30 pages, and both documents were huge. And, and I thought this is, becomes unwieldy. Let's see if we can put this together into Brilliant. a searchable database, which is better for all and much easier to just add new bits and pieces up in. And, and who would have known at the time that the, you know, probiotic research would explode the way that it, it had. Certainly, I, I didn't guess that back in 2000 when I started my, my probiotic in-depth journey. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so we created a database where you could look at the, the research um, evidence on particular strains um, and, and where to find those particular strains. And it also means that, that you can just go into the health food shop or if a patient comes in and goes, hey, I'm taking this probiotic, and I, I've never heard of that one, you can just type it in and it'll show up and go, okay, what strains are in it and what research has been done on those strains so you can see whether it's worthwhile that patient taking yes. that product or not. Absolutely. Thank you. And if you're wondering about Jason's accent, he is in Australia. It's his, the sun is rising. Actually, you said it was dark and the sun is setting it's over still, here still in Canada. still dark, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but he's in Australia via Canada, so you'll, you'll pick up both. Listen, you know, since you talked about actually starting to um, curate this database in 2000, I, you know, the first thought that popped into my mind was uh, the analytical methods have changed remarkably from when you first started gathering your data. So culture was de rigueur. I think back then, yeah, and now, we're, was. now we're, we have newer technologies, you know, PCR and, and beyond. Um, do, do any comments on that, like how reliable the early data are and, and, you know, do you continue to incorporate those early studies in your thinking? Yeah, good questions. I mean, I think around therapeutic efficacy of, of specific probiotic strains for, for health conditions, yes, I think the, the early data, because, you know, we're often using... Um, subjective markers of, of change of how people feel or, or, you know, sometimes instruments that are still used today in terms of, you know, um, quality of life changes or, or changes in specific uh, parameters. So, so that's, yes. Uh, what I think is really shifted is, is our thinking around the, the microbiota or microbiome. So, you know, research that was done in the 80s and 90s showing how, how probiotics um, potentially impacted the gut ecosystem well, that, that's a bit different because we could show, we could only see a small amount of what was going on. So the, the bit that we saw wasn't incorrect in that if we, if we gave a probiotic strain and it increased your, your, your levels of um, bifidobacteria, then, then, you know, yes, well, we can take that. But we just have no idea what it was doing beyond that because using culturing, we can only pick up a, a small percentage of, of the species that are actually present in one's gut. And some researchers estimated that in some people, 90% of, of the species can't be grown and cultured. So obviously right. for relying on those older tools, we could have, have not really see very well what was going on. Um, yeah. So I think that, that data, yeah, is, is certainly limited, but in terms of therapeutic effectiveness, I yeah. think it's a different story. Good. Okay, good. That's actually, that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right. So you have this probiotic prescribing paradigm. What is it? 
Well, I think that that really grew out of that that early early research, and you know, in my naturopathic studies as well, they they we certainly covered probiotics, but it was really the opportunity I had when I did my honors and PhD of spending uh, was probably five five and a half years of my full time work was reading probiotic studies and designing research studies. Um, it was great. <laughs> it's just, just a yeah. privilege to have that time. I worked part time yes. as a clinician uh, on the side on the weekends, but I, I essentially spent the rest of the time just delving into probiotic research. And what became clear was, was this idea of probiotic strains, which wasn't really taught to me at all in my naturopathic studies um, at, the, at that time point. And and it was really pretty mind blowing that, that actually it's, it's not lactose rhamnosus. There's actually hundreds of strains and just a few genes turned off or on made it made a big made a big difference in terms of therapeutic effectiveness potentially for and and what actions they were actually able to to exhibit. So I think that was what really started me on that. That I I of of um, moving down that pathway and also just because of the broadening of research and you know I think before we just gave okay probiotics give it for dysbiosis for dysbiosis yes. and it's like. Oh, actually, yeah, exactly. And, and it's like, no, some actually work to decrease blood pressure, some decrease high cholesterol, some altered brain neurochemistry, some slow down gut transit time, some speed up gut transit time, some strains are effective against H. pylori, others are, are effective against the, the prevention of, of, of SIBO. And, and you can't expect one strain to do all those different tasks. Right. Um, and, and it's like they have just like, uh, I think the paradigm that, that I've come, come to really is using... Um, probiotic strains as I would herbal medicines or pharmaceuticals, people would use pharmaceuticals is that it has a specific action. And when you want that action, you prescribe that agent. And, okay. and I think this, this, the strains that are useful for high blood pressure are probably the, the best case in point that there's, there's a particular strain available in, in Europe that produces an ACE inhibitor. So when people take this strain or, or drink a, a fermented milk made from this strain, um, it lowers their blood pressure. And the strain is? Uh, this one I don't know in the top of my head because it's not commercially available in my part of the world. I haven't memorized that one. Oh, you haven't? Okay, well, listen, <laughs> no. we're going to circle back to you and and you can look it up and we'll just print it in the show notes because I know people will be wondering if that's okay. Yeah, that's certainly doable. Okay, um, even but it, though it, we, we probably can't get it here, I'm assuming as well. <laughs> no, I think that's the thing too. It's not available in the Canada, US or Australia. So those ones I tend to just file a different part of my brain that they're interesting. Mm. Yes. But that I can't clinically use them, so there's no point trying to remember that that detail. Um, yeah, but I think it's a clear case case point here because as long as you drink that that product or you consume that probiotic, your your blood pressure will be lowered. Yeah, but when you cease drinking it or eating it, your blood pressure will go back up. Yeah, so it, it's it's very much just just like we use a, like I use a herb called rosella for decreasing blood pressure, so it doesn't treat the cause, which might be the fact they're obese and don't exercise and, and eat rubbish, <clears throat> and, but the, it'll decrease their blood pressure that whole time. <laughs> as soon as they stop, it, blood pressure will go back up because we haven't treated the cause. And I think that's similar the, with the way we should be using probiotics and what the research has really shown that for the most part is it's matching the strain to the action and that, that they have to the disease state we're trying to treat. And is this a tool that's available at Probiotic Advisor? I mean, how do you, I mean, it's a lot of research if a clinician is tasked with having to do a drill down and pull out, you know, either a strain or a collection of strains that they want to prescribe yeah. for a certain condition. I mean, that's a yes, big, huge. Yes. So, yeah. So, so the idea of the probiotic advisor is trying to make that process easier <laughs> because, because I'm a clinician too. And I know how much time it takes just to prepare, read your patient file notes, you know, what the, what's going on when you see them, let alone all the background stuff that goes after, after that point in time in terms of going in depth. So any, any tools that speed up that process of finding the right therapeutic tool for this patient or, or therapeutic intervention for this patient are, are 
very welcome. Um, and it's, it's been designed in that way so you can type in different disease conditions and boom, it'll tell you what strains have been shown to work and, and conversely what strains have been shown not to work. And that's good to know too because sometimes there'll be strains that actually have been clinically trialed and found to be useless. So that's obviously going to waste your patient's time where there's going to be other products in the market that have never been trialed. So we don't know whether they'd be useful for this condition or not, um, which for me, I, I, I would seldom use them either. <laughs> I would tend to use the ones that, that actually work for this condition. And, and this is what I think has been fascinating to, to see grow over this 18 years of when I first started that back in the early days, you would be experimenting more on patients because you, there was so little research done on specific probiotics for specific conditions that a lot of it was just making sure the probiotics had the right characteristics to enable them to have therapeutic effects, i.e. survive gastric acid, to- survive bile salt tolerant, yes. you know, those sort of basic characteristics yes. um, that we'd look for and go, okay, well, that means at least it might do something. <laughs> Let's trial it on patients and see. Yes. Whereas what's, what's grown from that over the years is now we actually know for a lot of conditions, not all, uh, some strains that we can that have been shown to work, and that's where I would start from. And does that does that, that strain that's been well researched always work for every patient with that condition? No, <laughs> does anything? Right. No, but it's a great great starting point, and, and it often works. And then for for those that doesn't, we can we can try being a bit more experimental with other probiotics that have similar actions, but might come in via a slightly different mechanism. Well, I'll tell you what you've just like you've given me a lot of questions, um, and I want so I want to ask you about mechanisms specifically. I mean, clearly what you're saying. So you're you're prescribing a probiotic protocol to see to achieve in it sounds like many cases an extra intestinal outcome um, uh, and and we know now you know even clinicians in the trenches who don't have their head in the research that clearly manipulating the microbiome is going to have profound system wide changes um, you know so 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 you know talk about that like in the case of of well, you were talking about this this one strain in Europe that we can't access here that actually produces a a uh, ACE inhibitor like compound. Yeah. Um, you know, give me like, can you talk to me about some other examples like leaning on? Are you leaning on that specific tr- strain to produce a compound that's going to then exert an extra intestinal effect, or and or? Often we are. are. Yeah. Okay, you are. Okay, well, give me another example. Well, we could look at. Um... Okay, a very interesting study that I, that I just came across. It was published early 2018, and that's using uh, the DSM-17938 strain of lactobacillus reuteri, which is the, the BioGaia strain, um, for the prevention uh, of SIBO development in, in people taking PPIs. So okay. very interesting approach. So that's they had right. people taking PPIs for just 12 weeks, and they gave them either placebo or they gave them five drops per day of the, the BioGaia preparation. And at the end of the 12 weeks, they did a breath test and they worked at, you know, did it help prevent the development of SIBO or not? And it turns out it did, that 56% of people in the placebo group developed SIBO after 12 weeks on a PPI, which is actually pretty mind-blowing because how many patients out there are taking PPIs for longer than that time period versus yes. 6% in the probiotic group. So 6% and- developed SIBO. And in this case, the probable mechanism is the production of a compound called re- reuterin. And reuterin is a, is a bacterial sin produced by some strains of lactobacillus reuteri, including this specific strain. And reuterin is, is a antimicrobial compound active against E. coli, streptococci, staphylococci, bacteroides, uh, um, 
enterococcus, the microbes that are commonly found in the small bowel of people with SIBO. So that's the probable mechanism by which it actually works in that case is the release of that compound as it's traversing through. And that's a really micro, that's a micro amount, three drops. It was five drops. Yeah, it is. Excuse me, five drops. I mean, what's the colony, how many colony forming units in that? There's not a heck of a lot. No, 100 million. 100 million million. CFU. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's, that is pretty robust. I've used that. I, I've actually used it quite a bit. I just don't, I just didn't remember how many CFUs there were per. It, compared to other products, it's extremely low. You're right. Cause you know, with, with the. Oh wait, uh, did you say a hundred million or a hundred billion? hundred million. Oh, a hundred <laughs> million. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, so that's it's very micro. different from, yeah, exactly. You know, so it's like matching the right strain that has the actions and attributes that we're after to the condition that we're trying to treat or prevent in this God, case. Like, isn't yeah, that fascinating? Fascinating. Fascinating. And okay. So, um, why don't you, geez, where am I going to go with this now? Um, talk to me more about, I know you're looking, give me some more examples of these strain specificity of, of probiotics. Okay. Uh, there's certainly, uh, lactobacillus rhamnosus GG, you know, which mm-hmm. is found in the U.S. is called Trail, and, and yes. um, the rest of the world is the market is more broad. That there's a lot of practitioner companies with G, LGG in it, um, and even some food sources. Like here in Australia, it's found in a been found in a yogurt even before it was found in a, in a dietary supplement form. This particular strain is useful. We've got uh, meta-analysis level data now, so a number of clinical trials showing that it uh, shortens the duration of viral gastroenteritis. Yeah, it shortens it by some research by two days. You know, and that's you know, two days of less vomiting and diarrhea. Mm-hmm. Big thumbs up from from me. I've had I've had kids, and you know, like even yes. four hours less of vomiting and diarrhea is a good outcome, let alone one to two days. Um, and we now know from more recent research, like we knew it worked, but the mechanism is that LGG tends to bind to the the, the rotavirus and prevent the rotavirus oh. from actually attaching onto your gut cells and causing damage. And it also upregulates the, the production of secretory IgA. Um, and other other strains of rhamnosus. In fact, there is there is one comparative study comparing the GG strain to an, another one called uh, available another product called Lactophilus, and only the GG strain actually reduced the duration of the diarrhea, and only the GG strain actually upped secretory IgA production. Yeah, so we know it's working by two different mechanisms in that case. And you have to go to strain specificity. I mean, you can't stop at you know species. No, because that, yeah, exactly. Because you start delving into the research around that and there's a tremendous amount of, of, of data and, and transponder research teams out there isolating out unique strains and they wouldn't bother doing this if there was no purpose to it. You know, right, right, you, right. you find a study where they're looking at, let's get 90 different strains of lactobacillus fermentum. And then they go, we want to develop a potentially new probiotic. So we put them through our, our probiotic obstacle course, which would be does it tolerate gastric acid? Does it tolerate bile stolts? Does it attach to the mucosa? And out of that 90 strains, I think there was 4% that actually did tolerate bile and gastric acid. That's it. 4% of those did. And then they take those 4% and then they, they expose them to, to um, other, other uh, obstacles, I suppose. Do they interact with the immune system in what way? Do they produce compounds that kill off other beneficial microbes or, or actually kill off pathogens, etc.? And then, and then the research sort of grows from there. So that there are a lot of research teams that they're trying to isolate out those strains and they wouldn't bother if they all did the same thing within the same species. And there's clear evidence that that's not the case. It's just a matter of a few genes being turned on or off that yes. can dictate whether something works or not. And then that's clearly the case with lactobacillus reuteri as well, that the DSM-17938 produces reuterin. And there's other there's research showing that other strains do not, and certainly not to a significant amount. And if that's the, the mechanism by which that strain works, 
then then obviously the other ones aren't going to work for the, for that scenario. Mm. They might have other co- traits in common, like the ability to produce lactic acid, which is you know pretty broad spread across lactobacilli. And if that's the action you're relying on, then then it doesn't really matter <laughs> which which strain you give. But if you're after a more specific mechanism by which it's working, and I think in most cases we are. Um, there are exceptions to that, but I think in most cases we are, then we really want to make sure that they display that action that we're after. You know, I just wanted to point out that lactobacillus rhamnosus GG, you know, as in culturel, is again, not a megadose. No, it, you're right. And, and most of the research has used between one and 10 billion CFU per day consistently over the last t- 20 years and it works at that dose. So I th- I, th- I think that, and, and the example of the studies using the, the, um, BioGaia strain, where most of the research has used 100 million CFU per dose or, or per day, or 200 million, so so much lower dose. Again, a step down with very good clinical trial outcomes. So I think it's is the right dose of the right strain, um, and, and certainly I think there's evidence for for dose dependent effects in many cases. So yes. we can look at uh, another strain, the HN019 strain of Bifidobacterium lactis which speeds up colon transit time. So we use it, I use it all the time for constipation patients or CIBS patients or methane SIBO patients. And the research showed that there, yes, there was the effect of speeding up gut transit time. And I think it went from, might be a little bit off with my hours here, but 45 hours down to 22 hours after two weeks of use, you know, some mouth to toilet bowl. Um, and there was some effect at 1 billion, but there was a quicker effect at 15 billion. Okay. You know, so, so yes, for some for some attributes, it's there's certainly a, a dose response, and one would expect it to be the case even with the the Reutri BioGaia strain that a higher dose would have a stronger antibacterial effect because right. you're having you know more of that strain coming through. But it's still fascinating that such a low dose can have such a such a potent therapeutic okay. effect. Okay. And the say, same that, time. say that say that say uh, that species and strain you were just talking about. Say it again. Oh, yeah, so Bifidobacterium lactis HN019. HN019, okay, perfect. Do, what, do you know off the top of your head the product that one might have to procure in the States for that specific Ah, uh, that one is found in Zymogen Probiomax. Is it? Okay, all right, that's really yeah. interesting. Um, you know, let me just ask you now about uh, soil, bacteria, spore farmers, etc. They're popular here in the States, um, and, you know, what is your thinking around them and what is your clinical experience? What do you see in the literature? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's almost as a, as a dearth of information in the literature, which is always where yes. I go to first. Yeah. And, and this is a thing right. that probably has precluded me from, from experimenting widely with them, um, with, with the odd exception of like this, the Italian product in um, that has a, has a robust evidence base, which again, I don't have access to here, um, that, that I would use <laughs> if I could use it, but I, but I don't have access to easily. Um, but yeah, it's a dearth of evidence that has been more, more problematic. So there's been a, a lot of claims made by, by the people who sell it about the therapeutic effectiveness. Um, and, and it's sadly, it's all based on theoretical concerns and sometimes I, th- I, f- I th- frankly misinformation about, about, you know, other probiotic products where they'll try to go, oh, these ones never survive gastric acid. These ones don't survive bile. Therefore, that's a waste of your money. Use ours because they do. And it's like, oh, that's a gross misrepresentation of data because there's lots, there's hundreds of clinical trials showing these ones work that are, that are lactobacilli and bifidobacteria based. Hundreds of clinical trials showing that they work. So you're, yeah, you're, you're trying to like put misinformation out there to sell products, which I, which I do find challenging. Um, but the, the, the body of evidence is growing that I, I've seen some, 
recent research on some of those the spore-forming probiotics that are actually they are doing clinical trials. So I think in the next few years when those results get published, uh, we'll get a better chance of seeing what they're, what they're good for. Because I, I think just because something's found in dirt doesn't necessarily tell you what it's useful for. You know, um, right. clear example here is uh, uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae variety bilardii that was isolated from the skin of lychees. You know, does it mean that every other microbe on the skin of lychees is going to have the same therapeutic effectiveness as that one? Of course not. You know, it's just that that happened to be the unique where, where they isolated that and it has a whole range of actions. That's what we, the sort of main S. Bilardia that people talk about was isolated from the skin of lychees by Henry Ballard, a microbiologist. Um, but we can't make those generalizations about the, the, where they're found. I mean, converse, just like we can't say, okay, because lactulosferminosis GG was found in, in a gut, some, some Swedish person's gut that everyone, other bacteria in that gut is going to have the same attributes as that and it's going to be as equally therapeutic effective. So right. I think there's some again, sort of misrepresentations out there that yes. surround that whole area. So I haven't used them much in, in practice because of that, that sort of lack of data. And I'm not anti them. And once there's good data there showing that they're, they're safe and effective, I will wholeheartedly use them in my, my practice. But um, I just think that that data set is building up for most of those products. There's a few like the Bacillus coagulans, uh, GB. Right. This one's a weird code, 6086. I've got that a little bit wrong. Um, that has some good data for some immune system function, functionality for improving um, immune system function and diarrhea prominent IBS and more broadly IBS. So yes, I have used that one in practice too, but I, I think the other ones were, were sort of awaiting more research to come. And it's somewhere where the, the hype was there first before the research was there. And, okay. and I think that's a bit problematic. Yep. I got it. Okay. So you're just waiting for the science to catch up. I think that's entirely respectable. Um, the, the probiotic product that you did mention with some decent uh, research on it, where can we source that in the States? Do you have any idea? In Terrajamina? <laughs> um, nowhere. <they're> aware. <laughs> okay. I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's an Italian product. And, and um, from my understanding, they, they haven't, um, you know, released They're that same product it. into the, to the U S market. Um, okay. Yes. Listen, let me just ask you, this is kind of my, um, you know, just hail Mary pass, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if I'm using, that's a football term. I don't know if I'm using it right. But I remember I treated a patient in my practice a while ago who had trimethylaminuria. So she had an accumulation of trimethylamine and she wasn't able to me metabolize it out. Now, as you know, trimethylamine oxide, there's been a lot of flurry of research around it in relation to cardiovascular disease. And they were in Australia, somebody was working on a probiotic that actually com, uh, consumes, that uses trimethylamine as a substrate. Any, are you, do you have your finger on that? Are you aware of that? No. Okay. So maybe it, maybe <laughs> yeah. it didn't work and it just sunk. Um, oh, or it's in the process of, of publication. Because yep. sometimes when they, when they go through the, uh, use the term proper scientific channels, <laughs> it's yeah, like, it's, it takes it's years. Yeah. And you can look at, at, uh, well, two probiotic strains, the, the GR1 strain of lactobacillus rhamnosus and the RC14 strain of lactobacillus fermentum that were essentially had probably 15 years plus of research on them before they were commercially available. And this drove me mad as a clinician because, and as a researcher because I could read the research talking about, and these ones are used for uh, bacterial vaginosis and uh, vaginal candidiasis. You know, so it's very much a uro um, vaginal um, 
attributes of these particular strains, and that's why they were selected. But it was it was frustrating because I could see the research. And I'm like, damn, when are these things going to come out? But then after 15 years, they did. Um, it's just that, but we clearly know what they're good for at, at that time yes. because there's been a good body of research that's that's been set up. But it, it can be frustrating if it, if the, the initial data is coming from you know. More, you know, more conservative scientists and it's probably a slow process from the, the con, con, you know, where they conceive the idea, do all the animal research, do human trials before it gets yes. you know, released into the public. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And where are those strains available now? I hate to, I hate to be like pinging you with this, but I know these are questions folks are going to have. Yeah. Right. Those were, those were that one I know. So that one's okay. So that's uh, the Gero Femdophilus in the U S and there, there might be others too, but that was the first one that actually had it. So those ones, that product has got the RC 14 strain of um, fermentum and the um, GR one strain of lactoferminosis. And are you prescribing those orally or intravaginally? Both. Actually. Both. Okay. Yeah. And, and this one's cool because there actually are human research studies showing that when women ingest it at orally, it actually does reach the vagina and colonize, um, that's just, an, which is very cool because it's got to get all the way through the gut and then make the journey from you know, anus to vagina, which is a bit of a perilous journey for microbes. Um, but these ones can and, and actually set up shop in, in the vagina. So you'll get higher amounts from an intravaginal application for sure. But um, I, I like, I would often do both in most women. So they're sort of getting that, um, a chance for those microbes to, to perhaps inhibit some of those, those microbes that are um, using the gut as a reservoir and candida might fit this picture, for example, when they take it orally as well as inserting it intravaginally. Mm -hmm. God, that's really fascinating. I always mm. thought that they were exerting their influence intravaginally when you prescribed orally through some of the um, compounds that they produced you know, impacting things systemically. And it's probably both, right? Yeah. Yeah. For some yeah. strains, def definitely. It, but we know that these ones do. Uh, and that's where th that was one of those initial obstacle course criteria that these researchers had is that it had to be taken orally and end up in the vagina. Fascinating. <laughs> and only some of the strains do, not all strains do end up in the vagina after oral use, but these ones do. So, yes. So we're talking about the, you know, just really pinpoint prescribing here, which is, really important in working on specific conditions using this pinpoint um, prescription. So you're like doing symptom control. And I think we're doing some underlying correcting also with probiotics. It's not just, you know, giving an, giving a uh, drug for the vaginosis. We're doing more than that with probiotics, but the microbiome is massive. And, you know, interestingly, I did my background, I did a postdoc training in laboratory science at the first clinical lab to release a PCR stool analysis, metametrics, ah, you know, some yeah, years okay. ago. So we spent a lot of time thinking about this. And our conclusion after being headlong into the literature for, you know, for years was that, you know, ultimately we need to manipulate this, the whole microbiome towards balance and probably our biggest leverage is diet. So I was actually extremely excited by what you're doing and what your work is around. I thought, okay, now we're analyzing the gut using PCR. We're like so fast forwarded. We're able to look at all these anaerobes and da, 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 da. And of course yeah. we were only looking at a smattering. We weren't looking at the whole, we had, certainly hadn't characterized the entire microbiome. We were just looking at a smattering of them. So that was like, you know, the first limitation. But Which, even, yeah, but that was still for, for way ahead of where it was. Yeah, it was, it was, they were, he, they were heady times. I mean, it was very exciting. But my, you know, my hope was we would be moving towards this precise prescription that you're talking about and that you're, you know, that you're developing over at um, Probiotic Advisor. So 
my hat's off to you in a big way. But the end game for us most of the time was you have to think about diet. So you're looking at you're you're still you're in clinical practice you know you're teaching and then you have probiotic advisor but you're you're working with patients and you know you need to work with the entire microbiome and you need to assess it and you need to manipulate it um talk about that like talk about what you're doing how what what kind of lab tests are you using and then how are you getting in there and just moving the whole microbiome towards balance actually and can you recover from probiotics where there's some research or excuse me antibiotics where there's some research suggesting that you know we're not gonna i know i'm throwing too many questions out at you but go ahead just just start just start there are great questions and i'll keep keep ask them again if i don't cover all of them um and this is my first i know i'm sorry (laughs) No, it's, it's, um, yeah, yeah. So for, for me, assessment of the microbiome is, is something I do with, with pretty much on nearly every patient. Yeah. Um, looking at, 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 so I might do that with my initial consult and, and so it may take six, eight weeks before I get the results. So I'll start with, with other sort of treatments in the meantime, whilst I await the results to come in, but it, it, it is a key thing. And, and I think, you know, as, as all your listeners would know is that the, the research linking dysbiosis to dysfunction or ill health has has skyrocketed from in the last 20 years where we used to have it linked in with yeah with irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease whereas now it's like eh, alzheimer's anxiety asthma yes. autism chronic fatigue depression metabolic syndrome multiple sclerosis type 2 diabetes parkinson's <laughs> it's like and yes. the list goes on and it's like wow yeah yeah so the, the, it's important that we actually assess this and I think in, in all of our patients and also see where it's actually at and, and then how we can modify that. And, and you've hit the nail on the head in terms of dietary approaches are really the tools that have the biggest capacity to impact that ecosystem. Um, certainly when the ecosystem is very disturbed, like after radiotherapy or chemotherapy or antibiotics, for example, um, probiotics can play a very pivotal role in helping it to, to restore the ecosystem more quickly and to prevent the overgrowth of, of potential pathogens, be that Clostridium difficile or, or Candida albicans. I think there's, there's, you know, or, or other microbes. I think they're very pivotal in that situation, but you know, a few years down the road, uh, probiotics will have minimal capacity to, to alter that ecosystem, particularly when compared to, to big dietary shifts or use of prebiotics. And, and I think for me, the, the core aspect of how I'm altering people's microbiomes is with dietary alterations and, prebiotics those would be the tools that that i use most and that you see clearly with follow-up testing have made the biggest the biggest difference what lab are you and and in the broader speaking of dietary stuff i'd include you know polyphenol rich foods um because i know you love polyphenols as much as i do and and prebiotic um rich foods as well and 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 just fibers in, in general but the, the thing about prebiotics is they're they're more specific and i think that sometimes gets lost out yes. there people go prebiotics are food for bacteria and it's like no, they're food for specific bacteria. Yes. <laughs> so when people eat these things, specific organisms change. Some go up and some go down. And, and it means right. that we can look at their microbiome and go, okay, well, you've just had a couple of courses of antibiotics and your bifidobacteria are 0.01%. And, and the, we know in healthy people, they should be you know, two, two to 5%. So how do we correct that? You know, yes, I could get them eating more, more fibers and that will have a small impact on that. And over time, more so, but, or I can give them a prebiotic that will specifically feed their bifidobacteria and in two months it goes up to a healthy level. So it's, it's really allows, I think using, using the range of those tools allowed you to, to really impact that ecosystem in, in sometimes very specific ways, but also even um, more broadly because 
you know, trying to de- define what a healthy microbiome is, is that there's, there's, you know, scientists debate everything. And there's certainly some debate about what that is and how we can define it. And, and that's fair enough. Um, but I think there are some things we know that are, are important and that's diversity. Diversity is, is pretty clear. And I think every, every microbiome research scientist will tell you that diversity is, is key um, for, for gut ecosystem health. Yeah. Yes. But also levels of, of potentially disease causing microbes, we might call pathobionts, um, where you know, if their, their population is too high, we start getting some negative ramifications. And then if we have too low levels of certain species like bifidobacteria, Acromansia, Fecalobacterium, and other sort of butyrate-producing microbes, then, yes. then you, see, you see harm from that situation as well, and, and it, inability for people to get well and for their gut to function properly. What lab are you using, generally, or labs? Yeah, I mean, these days, it, it has been an interesting um, ride. Over that 18 years of when I first started using CDSAs, um, when, and I did that for my, my honors degree where we did some initial clinical trials, which may be actually very suspect on using culturing to assess the gut microbiota because of the lack of, of response um, shown in these particular population. We were giving them, I think, about 125 billion CFU per day of you know, lactobacillus and bifidobacteria and giving them prebiotic supplements to both lactulose and fructooligosaccharides and the CDSAs were unable to show any change in oh, populations. Yeah. Yeah, my patients were farting a lot. So, or my, my trial <laughs> participants. So I know they were working <laughs> and, the, and my preparation was made just for my clinical trials. It wasn't like the bacteria were dead. They were just right out of the, the manufacturing plant. So that, that's even the first hesitations around um, culture. And this was, it was back to 2000. So it, then, then, it was fascinating looking at that, that broader literature around the time, and you'd be familiar with that literature too, but where, you know, there was, there was very, culturing was just so inaccurate and so insensitive to pick up changes in the ecosystem. Even with, with big dietary changes, nothing was seen to show up. It's just when we started using DNA technology, it was like, whoa, geez, yes. we had no idea what was going on and what's, what's, how things are reacting. So for me, it, it's, it's been evolution uh, and going with that, that change of technology. So it's certainly they have to be DNA based in terms yes. of assessing the health of that ecosystem because that's the only way to find out what's truly there. And if you're using culturing, you, you get a handful of species, not a very good picture of what's there and sometimes an over-representation of what's there depending on how much those bacteria love growing in that particular media in that petri dish uh, versus a, a, an accurate representation of percentage wise of what's there so what about uh, oh, go ahead sorry go ahead. finish uh, i was i was gonna say in terms of actual labs i think you did ask that specifically I, I do use a lot of new biome in my in my clinical practice because the price price is good technology is good it's the timeline is not so good so i would love it if i could get results in two weeks but i don't but it you know for that price i can do a lot of follow-up testing and I just sort of have have changed the way I practice a bit in terms of not expecting to get results quickly to work on that. And and that's, you know, you you work with that, but I still use the uh, Genova GI fix stool profile at times too, when you're trying to get inflammatory markers and immune markers and using DNA to to look at, you know, they'll get 24 different species of gut bacteria, which is a pretty good start. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. You buy them though, that they don't actually quantify. Does that cramp your clinical style? It takes a while for your head to get around it, but they, they're using percentages, which is what almost all the microbiome researchers do too. So, so once I had to make that shift from that old idea of, of you know, CFU per mil of, of stool to actual percentage-wise in stool of this one is at 2%, this one's at 8%, this one's at 30%. Once I made that leap, it was actually better um, because most of the, the microbiome literature is talking about percentages, not about 
that's you can if you see it relatively yeah. to everything else. Exactly. And that's the thing yeah. too. You can go, okay, well, their disulfo vibrio, which is uh, one of the main hydrogen sulfide gas producers, yes. might be at one, one and a half percent of their ecosystem. And, and in this case, their bifidobacteria is at 0.01. It's like, geez. So you've got a pro-inflammatory species at hundreds of times level above <laughs> the yes. anti-inflammatory gut species in this person. So that, that will show up in that, in that respect. And I think also you get to see uh, nuances and, and changes. So even subtle changes will show up, I think, more readily using the, the percentage that's perfect. Okay, I great. Readouts. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I appreciate. I really appreciate that explanation. Are you familiar with Viome? Kind of a new lab on the horizon here in the states. Yes, not as much as I am with with um, Ubiome or American Gut Project, for example, because they've been around for longer. Right. 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 And yeah. Viome, I, you know, their chief medical officer is a really dear friend of mine, but we're not. I don't know that they're releasing. I, I, I bug them about releasing their data. Not that. Helen is listening, but Helen, if you are, <laughs> they're doing some really, really sophisticated work, and 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 I, and I just hope to, uh, you know, see it see it be made available to clinicians. Um, is it, is okay. that a test that doesn't provide you with the actual printout of? of I don't think you actually get you, you, the raw data. You get their interpretation. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I wouldn't least, like that. It, I want it, the raw, raw data so I can see what's there and how I can change it. Yeah. Well, they're looking so. at, they're actually looking at the transcriptome. They're looking at massive, massive piles of new data. Um, and I should say that, you know, it's, it's, I saw her, well, actually I talked to her in February, so it hasn't been that long that I was with her, but, um, you know, if, I, I don't want to, I don't want to misstate anything with regard to Viome because I do, I do think they're doing some pretty sophisticated stuff, but, um, you know, hopefully they'll, if they haven't yet, they'll make that, that data available. Um, okay. But listen, I want to circle back to all the provocative statements that you made around prebiotics. Um, is your, is your probiotic prescribing paradigm that you're evolving, including prebiotics, dosage, duration, which, to stoke which species, et cetera, because you're absolutely correct. I mean, prebiotics are, well, anything that you're consuming is ultimately a prebiotic for your microbiome. So are you, do, are you, are you eating what you need to be eating and how can you turn the volume up on certain species and et cetera, et cetera. So talk about that. Yeah. And, and I think that's where we've, we've got a fair bit of research that, that has helped um, fine tune some of those, those aspects. And, and there's other, I mean, and I think, Everything we eat will feed the microbiome. That is that is totally exactly. spot on. Yeah. But there are, I think the definition of prebiotic is a substance that's selectively fermented that encourages the growth of one or a limited number of bacterial species that enhances host health. And I think those are those are key key aspects that that differentiate, you know, a, a prebiotic fiber like oligosaccharides or fruit oligosaccharides from um, just, you know, broccoli fiber. And I love broccoli. <laughs> I'm still going to have lots of broccoli fiber too, but it's not going to have such a specific impact on that gut ecosystem. And I think this is where, um, when you have looked to see what's there, you can go, okay, well, they are low in acromanzia, they're low in bifidobacteria and low in fecalobacterium, or apparently, and sometimes even, you know, have none, no populations left. Um, and thankfully that's usually... Uh, it's not actual real extinction. It's this, what I call below detectable levels or below yes. detectable thresholds. So if you feed that species selectively, give it the right conditions, it will come back up. And this happens, thankfully, in about 80% of my patients. It's just those that have taken a lot of antibiotics or done a lot of herbal antimicrobials and 
very restricted diets where they're sometimes completely lost. So what are the main yeah. prebiotics that you're using? What, would, what yeah. would have the most broad application that could be a good take-home pearl for the clinicians listening today? Oh, <laughs> the most, no, the, no pressure. The, yeah, well, there's, there's just so many nuances in it, and that's, that's the, uh, yes. the challenge too is, is, is one from, I've been using prebiotics as clinical tools um, orally and even intravaginally for, for probably seven or 18 years now. So there's a lot of, of clinical observation as well as the research that, that's gone into that. And, and now, now I get to see the, the impact on the ecosystems that I didn't get to see you know, so easily 15 years ago. Yes. Um, so the main prebiotics I would use would be uh, inulin FOS, which is, or I think the proper name is oligofructose enriched inulin, which means it's a preparation that contains longer chain fruit oligosaccharides and shorter chain fruit oligosaccharides together, which feeds a, ensures the, the, the feeding of a, a, a wider range swath. of bifidobacteria. Yeah, yeah, it does. That's right. Com compared to one or the other, uh, galacto-oligosaccharides, lactulose, and partially hydrolyzed guar gum would be probably the key prebiotics I would use in my practice. Now, there are some there are differences between them, obviously, both in terms of side effect profiles and, yes. and tolerance levels, as well yes. as what microbes are fed. So partially hydrolyzed guar gum, usually well tolerated by the vast majority of patients. There are exceptions, but most tolerate it well, specifically feeds up your butyrate producing microbes. So that would be species that I tend to see go up. I would be Roseburia, Anerostipes, Subdola granulum. Um, and research tells us it also feeds another species um, <laughs> named SS2-1. <laughs> well, eventually we'll have a proper name, but it doesn't yet. Um, you know, and, and has a minimal impact on bifidobacteria. It'll bring it up a bit, but I've never seen it bring it up past 0.7% uh, of an ecosystem, whereas I can use inulin fast for example, or galacto-oligosaccharides, and, and they would target bifidobacteria really well to a greater degree, and fecalibacterium. Yes, and then inulin FOSS would also feed acromantia too. Now, FOSS is not necessarily well tolerated, though. So are you going to be mindful in your SIBO patients? Yeah, yeah. So there'll be some patients, groups that I wouldn't use them in, and that okay. SIBO patient, I wouldn't use inulin FOSS, but I do use PHGG, the, the partial hydrolyzed guar gum, and I will sometimes use galacto-oligosaccharides. And it what also about, depends on what stage of treatment that I'm in too. Am I in the, they've got SIBO now treatment phase or and they, they've, they had SIBO, we treated it. Yes. <laughs> and, and we want to make sure that their, their gut is in good nick. Yeah, yeah. Or, or they were treated for the last two years with really what I would call more extreme measures and now their colon ecosystem is really in a bad state. And then I would, I would come in differently with, with prebiotics in that case too, um, often because they're immensely sensitive because they've, they've cause so much collateral damage to their, their clonic ecosystem as part of trying to deal with their, their SIBO that they're in, um, in many ways worse off than what they were pre-treatment. Pre so um, I have a handful more questions, but we've been talking for a while and I could continue to pick your brain quite a bit. But um, what about, so, well, I, I guess the, I want to talk about endotoxins and what you're thinking about and with regard to addressing them and then the general impact on our health and turning around. But I also want to talk about intestinal permeability because undoubtedly you're working with this in your practice a lot and you've got probably a relatively creative way of dealing with it or maybe not, but you know, talk about that. Um, yeah, I think endotoxemia is, is huge. And, and I think 
as a naturopath, I feel pretty vindicated in this area too, because it's an right. old naturopathic idea. Yeah, that's and you right. go back to the, the first uh, edition of, of Pizarro and Murray's, you know, classic textbook of natural medicine. I wish yes. I read the name of the author, but he wrote a fantastic chapter on endotoxemia. And it was really what got me excited about doing microbiome and um, gut. Yeah. research and follow that pathway was was his textbook chapter at the time and and it's been fascinating to see the the growing list of of conditions that we now see associated with with bacterial endotoxins and i think this is only going to grow that at the moment we see endotoxemia is associated with you know alcoholic liver disease alzheimer's uh atherosclerosis chronic fatigue depression uh, metabolic syndrome non-alcoholic fatty liver disease you know blood sugar dysregulation but importantly just systemic inflammation and i think yes. that's you know how many diseases aren't driven by inflammation mm, that our patients are dealing with it's like it's huge and yet we've got this potential reservoir of inflammatory compounds in our in our gut that that we're often not considering um, because I, I think the way i tend to look at it is your, your gut bacteria can either be adding to your inflammatory load or decreasing your inflammatory load. And they can decrease your inflammatory load by improving gut integrity. And there are certain species that I see as pretty pivotal at that's the, what their which role are, and function is. Which, um, which, which are, are? <laughs> Ackermansia, bifidobacteria, oh, okay. yes. and your, your butyrate producers. I put okay, in that, yep. that category. And then you have other, other groupings like your proteobacteria, which is a, a, a phylum level um, combination of, of microbes, which are all gram negative and all proteobacteria have very pro-inflammatory endotoxins. So it's not, you know, bacteroidetes, which is another phylum. Um, they, they're, they're all gram negative too, but thankfully, because they're, they're there in often much larger amounts, their endotoxin is nowhere near as pro-inflammatory. But proteobacteria, which are, include microbes like Shigella, Salmonella, Mm -hmm. E. coli, Klebsiella, Citrobacter, you know, like there's a number of names there that we'd be familiar with as, as you know, pathogenic species of bacteria. Well, part, part of what makes them so pathogenic is that endotoxin loading. And, and for some people, we, when we do the, the stool test, and what I love about Ubiome is I actually get this data, of, uh, phyla-level data going, okay, you may have, you know, 0.2% proteobacteria in your gut which is like, okay, you're not going to get much endotoxin coming in from there. Or you might have 15% proteobacteria which is geez that's a lot makes you know 15 yes. every 100 bacteria in your gut are proteobacteria loaded with with endotoxin you know and endotoxin makes up i think about 80 percent of the cell wall of of gram negative bacteria and endotoxin can cause leaky gut so you get into this sort of vicious cycle of it damaging the gut then you absorb more endotoxin which then causes more damage um but but also you know just just having that much there in, in, independently of how good your gut integrity was um it starts becoming worse and i think that's one of the, the drivers of a leaky gut and some people is is not just things like like gluten for example and celiac disease but dysbiosis and having high levels of, of endotoxin contain, containing bacteria in the gut as a driver of gut damage and obviously systemic inflammation and even things like depression and anxiety that are that are now being tied in with that interesting interesting and so you know certain antibiotics could could allow for the proliferation as we see in c diff colitis yes and that and that's often the case it's, it's interesting post and even during antibiotics to see what's there right. and and i've had one patient that was doing a triple antibiotic cocktail for the treatment of um I guess a life-threatening like uterine infection. So it was good, good reason for taking the triple antibiotics, you know, life-saving. But yes. she was um, on the ball enough to do a fecal specimen <laughs> halfway through that process. Wow. Um, 
um, and, and sent it to Ubiome, and it was just interesting to see what was there. It was like her diversity score was zero percent, um, mm-hmm. which isn't very good. And but there were but ten species there that were tolerating and thriving in that new environment that was essentially where most microbe competition, most food competition had been wiped out, and all of a sudden these microbes that could tolerate the antibiotics had a lot of space and a lot mm-hmm. of food to yeah. grow into, you know, and and that's often the, the, the one of the, the main causes is, is antibiotics for that sort of dysbiotic picture that persists for you know a long time afterwards even six months afterwards her ecosystem was um despite a lot of work was was fairly dysbiotic still listen i want to ask a couple more questions so we've got to head home on the be on the home stretch here but what about vitamins um you know, I've been interested in the fact that obviously we're making vitamins in a healthy gut. We should be yeah. anyways. And I mean, do you ever think about that? Do you think I'm going to, you know, rebuild some of these bifido species or maybe supplement? So I'm either going to rebuild the microbiome or I'm going to supplement with specific probiotics in the expectation that I'm going to see folates rise or I'm going to see yeah. um, biotin, et cetera. I mean, do you, do you prescribe with, with that in mind? I do have that in the, in the background of my mind when I'm restoring, like, so if someone's bifidobacteria shows up as an extremely low or below detectable level, then, then it is in my mind that, okay, then they're going to be lacking potentially their um, endogenous producers of B vitamins. Yeah, because bifidobacteria do make B1, B2, B3, B6, folate, and biotin. You know, so, so, and, and we do have transporters in our colon cells to bring in those B vitamins. So I think is, you know, just shows that sort of evolutionary connection that we've got there. And there are consequences of, of not having them there too. So thank, thankfully there are other species in the gut, some of which we don't even know that, that can uh, pick up the slack. Exactly. The functional redundancy that's there, <clears throat> but, but that is, is certainly back in my mind of going, okay, this might have an impact because the B vitamins that are produced are often, they're, they're in active forms and very well absorbed. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a big drop that's actually happening that might have consequences. Well, let me that, ask you, system. let me just kind of springboard off that question and ask you a really important question that comes to, you know, that it has been posited to me. I've dialogued about it with colleagues and, and so forth. Um, that is when you see high serum levels of say B12 and B6 most commonly, and a patient hasn't been supplementing. So we know that B12 can be made in the gut and there's actually inactive B12 isomers, I think that it can apparently be made in the gut, but these could actually, these could jack up our serum numbers. Is that correct? Yeah, but I, I think with, with B12, you'd be thinking of SIBO specifically because we just don't have colon transporters for B12. We do for all the other B vitamins, yeah? So if you had high, high folate, then you could see that associated with, with gut, uh, colon production. But if it, was, if it was super high B12 in a patient that wasn't supplementing B12, then I'd be thinking SIBO. You, know, you would be, because we okay. do have the capacity to absorb B12 in small bowel. It's just not there because there are a number of species that make B12 in active forms as well as the analogs, you're spot on. Um, in the colon, it's just that we don't have the right pathway to, to absorb it there. And for oh, other reasons, we haven't evolved that pathway. We've got pathways for other B vitamins, but but not B12. Fascinating. Okay, so then if you ha- if you could not track down where this B12 was coming from in an, individ- in, a, in an individual with very high B12 levels, then you would be looking to the gut as the cause. Yes. And what about this. B6? I probably would be thinking similarly, but it could be okay. um, colon production in that case too, it because be there cool. are transporters for, for B6 in, in colon cells. So it wouldn't be just, just SIBO in that scenario. That's um, 
Yeah, and, and we'll probably have to wait for further research that that teases out, you know, what other species are involved with production of B vitamins. We mentioned bifidobacteria, and they certainly are. But yes. but you're right. There's a number of other other species that many of which have not been named yet, let alone you know quantified or, or d- discovered any great degree or detailed that could also be doing that that sort of function as well. That, that aren't going to be obvious to us yet. But in ten years' time, when that research has been done, we'll be able to see what's there and what's perfect. Doing. Perfect. Well, listen, Dr. Harlick, it was a really great conversation. I, I just re- enjoyed picking your brain and we could go on and on here. Are you available? Do you consult with clinicians if somebody wanted to discuss results and patient presentation? Yeah, do you, do you do yeah, yeah, I, I, re- I regularly do mentoring sessions okay. for, right, for practitioners. You, typically at this point in my life as, as one on, one-on-one scenarios yeah okay and, All right, and, and, and teaching clinicians is one of my you know, i've been doing it for a long time and it's one of my, my passions because it you know really gives you a chance to 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 affect lots of people's lives when you think yes. about it rather than one-on-one with a patient yes great and i still I love doing that too but but yes. if you're able to to you know change the way clinicians practice for the better it there's a ripple effect and you would know this too there's ripple effects that goes out hugely yes. um which is which is just phenomenal well, I have a clinical development program where we um, there's a, a number of physicians and clinicians tracking tracking with us, and we do um, expert teaching. So I, I, I will have to swing back and bring you on. I think that I think that they would absolutely love it. Um, we're gonna so for folks listening to the podcast, of course, in the show notes will be all of uh, Jason's contact information, so you can access him in any, you know, with, with whatever you want to do and certainly go, go over to probiotic advisor and check out the work he's doing there. Uh, again, thank you so much for joining me today on new frontiers. I think this was really productive, full of great pearls, and it was just a pleasure talking to you. Ah, it's a pleasure speaking to you too. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making New Frontiers in Functional Medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, These kind of comments will promote New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.